0: We are going to be looking at Mark chapter one. We're going to start our our, uh, study of Mark this week. I have not posted on the podcast, the Belmont RF podcast last week's talk, but I will be doing that and I will do that every week. Um, You might notice that there's two things on your uh, seat there. One of those uh, says the real Jesus part one. I'm going to make reference to that in a little bit, but the thing that I'm really going to be following if you want to follow along, or if you want to just listen, that would be fine, too, is seeing Jesus through the eyes of suffering, a study of the gospel according to Mark. That's what we're going to look at tonight, the first part of Mark chapter 1, all right? So um, I think I'll, I'll start with reading the passage. So if you have a, a Bible on your phone, or if you've got one of the, the sheets, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at the first 15 verses, and then we're going to i going to talk about it. I don't know if I, I mentioned this last week, but the Gospel according to Mark, um, we know on very good authority from some of the early church fathers that this is the Apostle Peter's account. And it was written to Christians who were in Rome at the beginning of the persecution of Nero, which was awful. And this is a book, this is why I've titled this series, looking at jesus through the eyes of suffering when you think about the gospel according to mark this is a book not so much designed to evangelize you as it is to say this is who the king is this is what he came to do and here's why it matters in the midst of intense suffering that's what this letter is about and or this gospel is about and i thought it would be a good one for us this fall. It also, as you're going to see as we read, the gospel according to Mark moves like, like lightning. It doesn't have long extended speeches. Instead, Jesus is revealed through actions. And the actions come boom, boom, boom like that. Right. So if we did the whole of chapter one, it'd be like we'd cover like 10 topics so we're going to do half of, the cha- of chapter one tonight. All right, so if you got it ready, let's, uh, you can follow along as I read this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, this is the John that we generally call John the Baptist, more technically should be John the baptizer. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray and then I'm going to dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. and We thank you for the gospel according to Mark. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the beauty of Jesus, the one who didn't have to leave the perfect fellowship he had in the Trinity and come live on this earth as a man of sorrows. But Lord, we're so grateful that he did. Help us to see what a difference that makes in our lives as we open up this portion of your holy word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to change this just a little. Yeah. Good. All right. So, as I said, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. And right off the beginning, right at the beginning, um, is really this astounding claim. Now... The problem with seeing this as an astounding claim is that most of you all have grown up in church or at least grown up around Christians and you've heard all these things, but it really is a big deal that there is a gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? That word gospel was a common Greek word, but it was not a word that had anything to do with religious stuff. It was a word that referred to news, but a particular kind of news. It was the word that you would use if a general had won a great military victory far off somewhere, and heralds came into your town and announced good news of a victory that was going to change your life. It was not a religious word, because religious... Words tended to deal with philosophy and ideas. But right at the beginning, you get the idea here that we're dealing with something very different. We're not just dealing with abstract ideas. We're dealing with something that actually happened. News about something. And this is actually the news according to Mark. Actually, in the Greek copies of this book that we have, it doesn't say... um, It doesn't say the gospel of Mark like as a title. It just says according to Mark. According to Mark. And then verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now that word Christ is not his last name. It's not Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one. And then this, son of God. That's a divine title. So here in one verse, you get this astounding claim that there was news about this anointed one who is called by this divine title. Now, now let me just unpack this a little bit, why this matters. The first is this word gospel. I know for a lot of people who've grown up in church, what they think preach the gospel means is tell people how to have a relationship with God. Now, I'm not here to completely kind of denounce that idea, but there is a distortion that's an important one for you to understand. The gospel is news about something God has done. It's not primarily advice about what you need to do So when we talk about the gospel according to Mark, we're talking about Mark's take on what actually happened. Now, there certainly is a response that it calls for because it's the kind of news that should change everything and should lead to a response. And as a matter of fact, the gospel according to Mark is a gospel full of action that demands a response from us. It's not the kind of gospel that just says, why don't you sit down and ponder this? No, it's a gospel that comes and says, Jesus did this. Jesus is this one. What are you going to do about it? And again, remember, this is not a letter or a gospel written to people who can just sort of sit back and ponder these ideas. This is a gospel for people who are literally being put up on stakes, dipped in tar, and lit as torches for Nero's garden parties. That's what's happening to the people that this letter, this gospel, is written to. So it's important we understand gospel is about news, not advice, and it's news about something God did. If ever you think the gospel is primarily about what you need to do, then you've missed the point. The gospel is first and foremost about something that God did that's astonishing and changes everything. Then there's this thing. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. That is a very astounding claim. And it goes on in the next verse, and there's a quote from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet. Actually, it's three different texts, but primarily most of the words are from Isaiah, and Isaiah is the main kind of focus here. So that's why Mark just kind of shorthand says this is from Isaiah. But what is it about Well, it's about God sending deliverance for his people. Isaiah had prophesied this thousands of years before. But here's what's interesting. If you look this up in Isaiah chapter 40, this is a prophecy about the Lord. Uh, Understand, Yahweh, the Lord God. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. It's about someone is going to be sent who will prepare the way for the Lord. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Why does Mark quote this verse right here? Because John the Baptist is understood to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy is prophesying that one would come, and the Jews understood that the one who would come would be Elijah. Now, Elijah is going to be the one to come. Why? Well, because he disappeared. The Old Testament doesn't record Elijah dying, and so it was understood that he was going to come back and prepare the way. And you see the connection of John the Baptist with Elijah and what he's wearing. You might think, why tell us that he's dressed in camel hair with a leather belt? Well, because that's how Elijah is described. That's how he dressed. He was a prophet as well at a time when Israel was under the power of an oppressive regime. And he's going to come and he's going to prepare the way. But here's the thing this is not something that was expected of the Messiah. The Messiah to the Jews was not the Lord. They didn't understand that the Messiah would be the Lord. So Mark in quoting Isaiah is saying, look, this guy, Jesus, he's a much bigger deal than we thought he was. He's a much bigger deal. But here's the thing, can we trust these claims? When I mean, we come here to the gospel according to Mark, how do we know that this is true? How do we know that this wasn't all made up? Now, one of the things that I wanted to do, I'm not going to go through this other outline I gave you. I give it to you as a reference, okay? But let me just give you a quick little excursus on this idea, just for a minute. There are basically, the real Jesus is a challenge for everyone. John chapter 1 says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's really hard for us to let Jesus be the full Jesus. We tend to want to restrict him In various ways. We want him to be the one who just comforts us but never challenges us. Or we want him to be the one that we can use to denounce our enemies or people that we think aren't as good as us, but we don't want him to challenge us, right? We do this kind of thing all the time. So it's hard for us to actually get to who was the real Jesus. I've been doing college ministry here at Belmont for 27 years, and I can't tell you how many times someone said, well, my Jesus isn't like that, right? and you have to say, well, who is Jesus actually, and how do we know? Well, you know, one of the challenges is that some have said that the gospels are not reliable sources of information about Jesus. That's a, that's a huge barrier to figuring out who he is, um, there's a lot of things I could say about that. That's probably a conversation we could have over a cup of coffee if you want. Um, sign up and we'll, we'll, we'll meet and we can talk about that. But I did put some things there for you if you just wanna see some, some thoughts on maybe how to respond to that. I really do think um, that if you start to dig into that stuff, you'll find that the critics who would denounce the gospels as reliable, or maybe they pick and choose, these things they would say could be Jesus, this probably not. There's a lot of that goes on. What you end up with is a Jesus who looks a lot like the critics. So for the pacifist critics, Jesus looks like a pacifist. What about, you know, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Oh, well, Jesus couldn't have said that. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and, and for the, the people that believe that the kingdom goes forward by force, which Jesus also said, you know, they're like, you know, um, you know blessed are the peacemakers. And they're like, yeah, I don't really get that. I like this Jesus, right? Everybody has this challenge of the real Jesus, right? And so one barrier to understanding who the real Jesus is is to be overly skeptical about the Gospels. The Gosp- there's a lot of reasons to be. Um, confident that the Gospels are a good source of how you can know who Jesus was actually. And there's another barrier which tends to be people that even have a high view of scripture, they tend to pick and choose as well and end up with a Jesus who doesn't get to challenge them. My encouragement as we go through the semester is that you let Jesus be Jesus. And like I said last week, Jesus upsets everybody. I've got a book, I actually was rooting around in my garage looking for a book for Libby last night, and I ran across this book again, Christ the Controversialist, an entire book just on the arguments Jesus has with people. And a lot of us don't like a Jesus you know, <laughs> who argues with people. That doesn't like, fit into our idea of what he's like. I thought he was always nice. Jesus was not nice. He wasn't. He was strong. He was loving. He was kind. Jesus, the real Jesus, So I I wanted you just to to understand a little bit about that. All right, move on. The the wilderness is a big thing here. If you notice this, the wilderness. What's the wilderness about? Mark makes a big deal about this. And, And John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. Jesus eventually gets sent out into the wilderness to be tempted. Okay? Now, the wilderness in Jesus' day, is like a desert with like shrubbery, you know, just like scrub. It's not a nice place. It's not a pretty place, really. It's not like, you know, in some ways, you know, we think you can go out into nature and meet God, but when you come to the Bible, what you need to understand is the wilderness is a really scary place. The city is the safe place in the Bible times, and the wilderness is the scary place, right? But John is out there in the wilderness. Why? Well, do you remember a thing called the Exodus? There was a guy named Moses, right? When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, God raised up Moses. But do you remember what happened with Moses? What happened? Well, at first, he tried to take matters into his own hands. He saw an Egyptian whipping a Hebrew, and he struck the Egyptian and killed him, right? And eventually, the Hebrews were like, uh, Moses, like, you're going to get us in even worse trouble. You just need to leave. And so he had to go out into the wilderness. And he was out in the wilderness when God called him and sent him back to stand up to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. So the exodus begins with the wilderness. And when they are led out of Egypt through the Red Sea, where do they end up? in the wilderness for 40 years. And Deuteronomy 8 is actually a really important passage in the Bible because Deuteronomy 8 is where God says, here's why I led you through the wilderness for 40 years. And you know what he says? He says, basically, I, I led you through the desert, through the wilderness. I made you hungry so that I could feed you manna that you'd never known before so that you could learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God said, I took you out of Egypt, but there was a lot more work to be done because you still didn't trust me. You still murmured against me. You said things like, why have you brought us out into the desert to die? And so God said, for 40 years, I was trying to teach you that you can trust me. It's actually the original sin back in the garden. When God gave good food to Adam and Eve, they said, no, we don't want that food. We want that tree over there that looks good. Again, not trusting God is the root of everything. Doubting His goodness. And once again, God's people are under the power of an oppressive regime. And once again, God is going to start a movement in the wilderness. The wilderness is where God meets with his people and where deliverance begins. The problem is we can't stand the wilderness. (laughs) Sometimes we would rather stay in bondage in Egypt rather than go out into the wilderness, the place where God wants to get at the stuff that really is keeping us from trusting him. And it was like that in Jesus' day, too. All right, so John the Baptist, God sends him, and he's out there in the wilderness, and the people are coming to him. And they're coming because they need to repent. Things are terrible. Things are are, are not good at all. The people need to repent and trust the Lord. John's baptism, I hope you understand, is not Christian baptism. It's not Christian baptism. So it's actually not even that relevant for all the debates about baptism. Because John's baptism is a ceremonial washing as a way of saying, I'm sorry, God, and I wanna change my life. But it doesn't actually have power. It doesn't actually have power. It's more a way of saying, I'm sorry, and I want to turn my life around. But God is going to send one who does have power, who can actually change things. You see, just as the first exodus didn't change the heart of God's people, so John's baptism doesn't change the heart of anyone. Saying you're sorry, as as helpful as that is, is not enough with God. Let me say that again. Saying you're sorry to God is not enough. You actually need a substitute and that's what Jesus comes to do. Notice when Jesus comes to be baptized, something different happens. Everybody else just goes in the water, they get baptized, and then they come up out of the water, and that's it. But when Jesus comes, now if you go over to Matthew's account, he kind of tells, fills in a little more of the details. Does anybody remember what happens in Matthew's account? Well, when Jesus comes, John says, No! I shouldn't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Like you don't have anything to say you're sorry for. Jesus, why would you why would you come and do this ritual and say I'm sorry by your actions when you don't have any need to do that? And do you know what Jesus says? He says this is necessary so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. In other words, I'm doing this as a substitute in the place of my people. And so John consents and he's baptized. And then what happens? Well, we pick it up in Mark. Then what happens is the voice comes, the dove comes down, and here you have this remarkable revelation of who God is. And you know why it's so important? Is because you'll never understand who you are if you don't understand who God is. There's a great uh, theologian, not perfect by any means, but a guy named John Calvin that said this, that there are two things that we need to know, the two important things to know, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man. And those are inextricably linked. You won't really understand God unless you understand who mankind is, and you won't understand mankind unless you understand who God is. So what do we have here? We have a revelation of this, that God is, is one god in three persons and they are perfectly satisfied and joyful in their relationship with one another c.s lewis put it this way He, um, he talked about it as a kind of dance listen to what he said he said in christianity god is not a static thing but a dynamic pulsating activity a life almost a kind of drama Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Now when you think of God, do you think of like him like just sitting passively on a throne? Do, I, I, do you think of him as just kind of a life force? I don't know what you think of when you think of God, but this is a revelation of who God is right here at the baptism. You have Jesus the Son, you have the dove coming down, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, which the Jews actually, in Jesus' day, interpreted Genesis chapter 1, the picture of God hovering, even fluttering, the Hebrew could be translated, over the waters of the deep as a dove. God is like a dove hovering over the deep in the creation. And so, so this was a symbol. They understood what this meant. God's spirit has come down. And then the voice from heaven. And so who is God? Who is God? God is three persons in this dance of love and joy. And why does that matter for you and me? Well, there's all kinds of competing ideas of what it means to be human. You'll learn a lot of them as you go through college, right? But what Christianity says is what it means to be human at the very center of reality is perfect, loving relationships. That means that that's what you're made for. Perfect, loving relationships. As I said last week, and I'll hopefully we'll say regularly, God did not create you just to be his little worker bees. You know? I kind of hate that phrase, save to serve, because it trivializes what God did. Yes, we're to serve in his kingdom, but first and foremost, we're to bask in his love and the approval that he gives to his people. I talked about this, uh, this idea of, a, of we need a substitute that's sorry and enough, and that song that we sang at the end, Lord, I need you. Do you know what it means when it says, my one defense, my righteousness? Do you know what righteousness is? Righteousness is not the same thing as forgiveness. Do you understand this? Super important to understand this. Forgiveness means you had a debt and now your debt has been clean. But what if God requires you to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul from the moment you're born to the moment you die? Okay, so you haven't done that. And God can give you forgiveness, but you still have to do that. So what are you going to do? righteousness. Righteousness is the beauty, the beauty that comes upon you when you do everything God requires from the heart. It's when God looks at you and says, you're beautiful in my sight because you've done everything I required. The only way you get that The only way you get that is if Jesus gives you his life. You know, I've heard it said that um, when you become a Christian, like you've got this book and God's written down everything that you ever did, ever thought, right? And when you become a Christian, then you open up the book and it's a blank slate. All that's wiped away. That is not the good news. Because that would still leave you needing to fill up your book. Okay? What the gospel, the good news, really is is you get Jesus' book. In other words, sure, you have a book and God's written everything down. I mean, I know it sounds a little too much like Santa Claus. But let's just say that you have a book and God's written down everything that you ever said, everything that you ever thought. But so he's done that with Jesus as well. And when you become a Christian, when you trust him, when you give your life to him, you ask him to save you, God switches the covers. You don't just get forgiveness, you get righteousness. And that's why it's my one defense. Because if God comes to you and says, what have you done? What have you done to enter into the joy of relationship with me? We'll say, well, I haven't done anything good, but go take it up with Jesus because he lived and died in my place. And I have his righteousness that clothes me. Therefore, I'm beautiful in your sight. Do you see the difference? If all you get is forgiveness, then Christianity is just a fresh opportunity to try to impress God. And for a lot of you, I suspect you've been trying to do that, and, and it doesn't really work for long. You know? I remember one time I, I was at a, a youth retreat and the speaker was talking about you know something or other, and I think I had a cabin of guys, and we were talking afterwards, kind of going through, maybe a lot of you have done this, I know a lot of you worked at camps, and as I'm listening to these high school guys talk about what they're getting out of the talks, I'm like, they are completely missing the point. And so I go over to the, uh, to, to the main speaker, I was like, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm talking with these guys, and they all are like, all like fired up, because it's a you know, Christian camp, they're all fired up to turn over a new leaf. You know, and kind of they're really going to do it this time. They're really going to take this back to their high school when they, when they get home. This time it's going to be different. And, um, and he said, oh, OK, I'm going to have to deal with that. I was like, yeah, you are going to have to deal with that because they're missing the point of Christianity. So he gave this a brilliant illustration that night. He said, you know, a lot of you all are sitting here thinking that you just need to turn over a new leaf. But the problem is that you basically that you basically are like, a pile of stinking, rotten leaves. Yeah. And so you can stick a pitchfork in that thing, and you can turn over a new leaf, but it's just stinking, rotten leaves. So listen, your hope can never be in turning over a new leaf. Your hope is in Jesus, the substitute. And that takes us down to the end here. So if that's true then why in the heck does jesus get driven into the wilderness now now for a lot of us we read this we're like okay jesus comes and we can have a relationship with him that's awesome but the spirit drives jesus into the wilderness i mean is that what the spirit does I know a lot of people are like, you know, you Presbyterians, you don't talk very much about the Holy Spirit. I talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit does things that do not fit the category most people have when they think of what the Spirit does. And what the Spirit does here, listen, one of the great keys you can ever get in understanding the work of the Holy Spirit is what it says in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus was anointed with the Spirit beyond all other men. And if you want to understand the work of the Spirit, you have to start with... How does the Spirit anoint Jesus and what does it mean? Well, what it means right here is he gets driven into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted for 40 days. And do you understand what's going on here? Just as Jesus said, I need to be baptized in the place of my people, so I need to go into the wilderness 40 days in keeping with the 40 years that Israel still never quite understood, never really came to trust God as they should, I'm going to go endure that temptation that they went through and failed. But Jesus wins the victory. And every time he answers Satan's temptations, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy to show I understand and I know how to use God's word to fight against this temptation. The affirmation at baptism and then the temptation in the wilderness. Here's the thing, guys. And this, think about this, written to Roman Christians who are undergoing persecution and maybe be wondering, hold on. Like, I thought Jesus was the one who brought joy and meaning to my life and now I'm going to be sent to a cross. I'm not sure that's what I signed up for. And what Mark is saying and what Peter is saying is, as it was for Jesus, so it is for his people. But you won't be going through this alone because Jesus did not stay in that perfect, joyful relationship with the Son and with the Father, even though He could have, even though in some ways you look at it, you're like, why would He leave that for the likes of us? But He did. He did. And the Spirit drove Him into the wilderness and He triumphed. Don't miss the reference to the wild animals, right? wild animals. This is, this is the period in which Christians were sewn inside deer skins and then thrown to packs of starving wild dogs. How does it change your experience with God to know that Jesus also went to the wild animals, right? And he didn't have to. He did it completely because of his love for us. You know, we know that this was a great encouragement to the Christians because we have the record of a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was maybe 86 years old when he finally gets brought to the Roman Colosseum. And they ask him, now at this point, Polycarp is the only Christian alive who knew the disciples personally, okay, when this happens. He's 86 years old, And he approaches the Colosseum and they say to him, renounce Christ and we will set you free. Renounce Christ and you will not have to face the wild animals that are here today. And you know what he said? Here's what he says, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? How would this, be an encouragement to christians in rome how is it an encouragement to us today if you feel like god is hiding from you this is a really important passage for you to understand the normal christian life the normal christian life that jesus himself experienced was baptism right mountaintop experience how great is that to have the spirit come on you like a dove to hear the voice of affirmation from the heavens. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you feel like if I had that, then I would really know that God loved me? Jesus had that. And then he gets driven into the wilderness. But God's love never changed, whether it was at the baptism or in the wilderness. The Spirit, after all, is the one who drove him into the wilderness. What does that mean for you and for me? It means that if you're feeling like you're in the wilderness, rather than on the mountaintop right now, you're not crazy it's typical